0: There's so much health advice floating around, online, among friends. But who can you really trust? Trust the experts. Listen to the world's brightest medical minds, our very own Cleveland Clinic experts. We ask them real questions, tough and intimate health questions. And we get real answers, all originally recorded live. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Nada Youssef, and you're listening to Health Essentials podcast by Cleveland Clinic. Today, we're broadcasting from Cleveland Clinic main campus here in Cleveland, Ohio, and we're here with Dr. Scott B. So happy to have you back. Thanks
1: for having me back, Nata. I had fun the last time.
0: (laughs) And Dr. B is a practitioner of cognitive behavioral psychotherapy and concentrates his clinical practice on anxiety and mood disorders. Dr. B is also a psychotherapy trainer and supervisor in the adult psychiatry residency training program here at Cleveland Clinic. And today we are talking about obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD. And please remember, this is for informational purposes only, and it's not intended to replace your own physician's advice. So, before we talk about OCD, I'm just going to ask you some questions again to just, you know, get to know you on a personal level. Sure. A little deeper this time. So, if you could have any superpower you want, what would that be?
1: If I think about that uh, (laughs) very much, I might get into trouble. But at this point, I said, I'd love to be able to fly. Fly, okay. I think that's the ambition we all had when we were kids. It would be beautiful to fly and uh, be something sweet to see the world from that vantage point, I think. And transport yourself more quickly. Yes, absolutely. would not have to take the bus home. (laughs)
0: That's right, no traffic. So um, if in 20 years or whenever people started migrating to Mars, would you go or stay behind? And why? I think I'm sticking. You You know, it's interesting.
1: I, I actually had a class on space colonies when I was a college student and I really mm-hmm. thought we'd be in space colonizing space have you know space stations yeah. much more enormously than we have now but at this point I like the food and the <laughs> feeling of mother earth a little too much I've yeah. gotten older my risk assessment <laughs> has changed since <laughs> I've gotten older
0: I think physically and mentally we're meant to be home with That's the trees, right. water Right? yeah okay so um if after we die we become animals what animal would you want to be or would you be
1: wow yeah I've kept a lot of cats in my life. I've got a fondness for dogs, but something tells me a panda bear. They seem awfully cute and uh, (laughs) cuddly, and uh, they uh, get lots of affection, I think, somehow. Good,
0: good. Or a bird, so you can fly. There you go. Either of those. Okay, excellent. Thank you so much. (laughs) All right, so millions of people are affected by obsessive-compulsive disorder. The International OCD Foundation says that in the U.S. alone, as many as 1 in 100 adults and 1 in 200 children have OCD. That's roughly two to three million adults and a half million kids. And when you look at a lot of times at movies and shows, yeah. they seem to portray OCD almost as a lighthearted, funny thing. But it is not a funny thing, and it's one of the biggest myths about OCD. Um, it is a disorder, and it's very distressing for the people that have it. So I want to begin with today's discussion with the definition of what is OCD. It
1: really is uh, a tough condition. As you said, it gets tossed around flippantly in our culture where we minimize the suffering that people go through. It's an anxiety disorder. Mm -hmm. It's very real. It involves either obsessions, which are intrusive, unwanted thoughts that are producing very high levels of distress or discomfort, and or compulsions, which are actions or mental acts that are designed to neutralize the feelings of anxiety, ward off uh, potential harm, sometimes devoted to suppressing or neutralizing the tension that obsessions are producing, takes up an awful lot of time in one's life, more than one hour a day. Some have it very pervasively. And uh, the compulsive acts are performed in very ritualized ways, according to specific rules. And again, designed to be neutralizing. It can range in terms of the interference it creates. People can be more or less insightful about the irrational aspects of OCD, but Mm -hmm. it creates an awful lot of suffering for an awful lot of people.
0: Now, where does it stem from? Is it something that is internal? Like when you say anxiety, I'm thinking of internal. I'm not thinking of something that triggered it or it could be. That where does it stem from?
1: It's coming from our brain. uh, You know, we know the brains of people with OCD are functioning differently. We'd say they're hypermetabolic. They are working real hard up Mm -hmm. here. If we image the brain, Uh, in sophisticated ways, we can see that the brain of somebody diagnosed with OCD is actually functioning differently than somebody that's not experiencing it. If they're treated effectively, that brain area starts to look more ordinary. Mm -hmm. And we know the circuits in the brain that seem to be associated with OCD probably better than any other uh, psychiatric condition. So we know a lot, but there's still a lot more to find out. It is a brain uh, concern. It's not that somebody did something wrong uh, to yeah. acquire it or was parented in the wrong way. It's really happening in the brain.
0: Okay, that's, that's very good to know. Now, does any repetitive or obsessive behavior qualify as OCD? How do I know it's OCD?
1: We have lots of repetitive behaviors. Might tap your foot, uh, tap a pencil, might check your cell phone an awful lot. Yes. I will say most repetitive behaviors are probably reducing tension at some level. But the repetitive behaviors of OCD are very purposeful. They're very much designed to get to a particular feeling state, to rid a person of a feeling of anxiety or to ward off a sense that harm could come to themselves or somebody if this is not performed. So and it also has to do with interference. Somebody tapping their foot or, you know, tapping a pencil or looking repeatedly at their cell phone is really distressed by it. There are some other distressing, repetitive conditions, I would say. Things like compulsive gambling or compulsive shopping or other things are more impulse control problems, video game addictions, things like that. But those aren't OCD.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So Is OCD defined by the repetitive action only, or also the repetitive thought in my head that keeps going on and on? If I don't act it out, is that not OCD?
1: It's interesting. I mean, OCD comes in all sorts of forms and varieties. So there are. A condition within ocd that some call pure obsessions in which a person is having distressing thoughts and the only action they're taking is actually a mental action yeah they may be praying they may be counting in their head they may be doing other mental acts those are still compulsions okay i mean that is an action they're doing it purposefully and again to get to some goal to some sense of relief And that sense of relief for human beings is wildly powerful. Just about anything that produces that feeling in us attracts us back to it. It's interesting. In OCD, we actually call this negative reinforcement. It sounds like punishment, but it's not. If you can get rid of an uncomfortable or unpleasant condition, you're motivated to repeat that in order to get to that feeling of relief. You could think of the snooze alarm as yes. like an instance of negative reinforcement. The alarm goes off in the morning, it wakes you up, you don't like the sound of it or the you know, idea that you have to get up. So you hit the snooze alarm, gets rid of the aversive condition, you can rest again. When it goes off, you're motivated to use the snooze alarm. Yes. So people that use the snooze alarm tend to use it a lot Yes, uh, because it's very rewarding. Every to morning. Get ri- yeah, get, <laughs> that's right, to get rid of that sound, to get rid of that feeling.
0: Yeah, right. yeah. So you know, we 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 live in a loop of life. Our days are very similar, even though they're different. We're yeah. very habitual beings. Yes. So is OCD almost easy to come by to if I, I could be doing something habitual that to me, I do it every day. But how do I know the difference between I'm just doing repetitive behavior that I do every day versus this is a mental condition?
1: I love the question. You know, uh, human beings are ritualized. We're Creatures of habit. Nobody in our audience probably showered in a wildly different way this morning. start right. started my toes and work on up, <laughs> right? I mean, we do these things, and habits actually keep us from being as tense. If we had to think through, what do I do about showering every day, or how do I make this left-hand turn in my car? Right. It would create a lot of complications. So these habits exist in a deep spot in our brain called the basal ganglia, and. In many cases, it just makes our life easier. OCD is not something that you just happen on. Uh, We don't really cultivate that. It comes on us uh, generally as a result of something going on in our brain. So even though we're all creatures of habit and, you know, we may be more or less habit driven, most of that's not OCD.
0: Okay. Does OCD start from childhood or is this something that um, only adults can get?
1: We definitely see it in children. It I mean, children. for boys, we see it in a little bit earlier stages—eight, nine, ten—not uncommon for uh, boys. For females, a little bit later, and and sometimes people may have bits of it, but it hasn't created tremendous interference yet. There are instances in an adult's life where they'd say, "I never had OCD before," but something changes—a period of stress yeah. after the birth of a child. It's not uncommon that OCD might really flare up for certain women right after the birth of a child. Yeah. And uh, so it catches some people by surprise, but we often see it, the early parts of it, in childhood.
0: Okay. So environmental factors could be uh, a trigger or something. Oh, definitely.
1: And and, and people with OCD will tell you in a climate of stress, Mm -hmm. their condition worsens. It gets harder to resist performing their ritualized compulsions. Um, And certain life stressors, as I say, or events can trigger the illness itself
0: sure okay now i want to talk about um two things ocd a lot of times is confused with perfectionism can we um, talk about the difference because a lot of people are like oh sure. they're very ocd they're very organized and perfectionist but what is the difference let's talk yeah,
1: about that that's that's where our culture kind of gets it wrong where people say oh i'm so ocd that that's yeah that it's that is, yeah, is not ocd and again it, it kind of injures people who are suffering with the illness because it minimizes it You know, perfectionists are going to be able to justify their perfectionistic strivings. They're going to say, hey, it really helps me out. I'm a better student, or my home stays in good shape, or I'm really organized when it comes to bill paying or decorating or those sorts of things. There's usually a a rationalization for it. It's not seen as an irrational act. They may know that they pay a bit of a consequence for it. There's also a condition known as obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, which is a little bit more defined by perfectionistic strivings, orderliness, trying to control the environment. But that is distinct from OCD. And so it has to do with how rational the acts are. And a lot of people with OCD will tell you, I know this is silly. Or they'll label it as as stupid or irrational, and yet they can't help themselves. Perfectionists kind of know what they're doing, they have a justification for it, and they're striving to get to this feeling of closure, completion, or perfection, although we say perfectionism is an imperfect pursuit.
0: Correct. Yeah. Yes, yes. All right, very good. So uh, many people um, tend to think of OCD as a fear of germs or repeating something over mm-hmm. and over, like maybe locking the door over and over, or turning off the oven. Mm-hmm. Can you give us more examples of what we might not know um, are considered OCD?
1: Yeah, sure. I think some of the most common obsessions and compulsions center around harm, or Mm. we call them harming obsessions, harming another person. I mean, as odd as it sounds, you know, a fear that I might stab somebody, a passerby, even though I don't have a Uh sharp object on me, or injure somebody with my words, that I might utter a verbalization or say something that is uh, racially insensitive uh, out of one's awareness. Um, Having thoughts of self-harm. Uh, a person could have a thought of suicide go through their mind and become alarmed by the thought and then go into rituals uh, Mm -hmm. to try and reassure themselves about suicidality yeah and there's something we call scrupulosity which is a real debate over right and wrong is Mm -hmm. that this a right or wrong thought right or wrong behavior did i look at that person You know, too seductively or lustfully. Those people sometimes feel a need to go confess that to their partners. That would be the compulsion. The obsession was, oh, my gosh, did I look at them in a way that was wrong? Uh. They might engage in confessing behaviors, a very common compulsion, in order to reduce their tension. It's brutal to their partner, of course, but they're trying to correct something in their brain. Also, obsessions about sexuality, uh, about one's sexual identity, sexual uh, orientation, or even whether or not uh, they could be a sexual predator or pedophile. Those are actually uh-huh. relatively common sorts of obsessions that afflict people. And it takes all sorts of forms. These days, I've been treating people who obsess about getting bed bugs, yes. And so this is on their mind consistently. They're checking consistently. They avoid going into Certain public environments, stores, come home and put all their clothes in the dryer to ward off any chance that they might get bed bugs. So this is something that's emerged more recently.
0: Why do you think that emerged more? Is it because it's in the media? Mm-hmm. People are reading about it?
1: It's in the media, and it's one of those things that you can't absolutely control. Yeah. And yet people want to exert control, and the imagery in their head creates such tension that this yeah. would be intolerable in In a case or two, it's actually happened to them before, but they'll still see that as an intolerable mm-hmm. consequence and They spend lots and lots of time thinking about it and trying to ward off the danger of it and just avoiding you know being out in public um, oh. There are people that might not want to sit in our waiting room because there are upholstered chairs uh, I've been advised to not uh you know or if I ride the bus to go home and immediately put my clothes in the dryer, oh. having been on public transportation, yeah
0: yeah, so it takes
1: all sorts of. Forms and shapes and varieties, the things that can really shake up our brains can you know, be kind of grist for the OCD mill.
0: Yeah, and just like you mentioned, it is in the brain. Would you consider that to be a little bit of maybe overthinking?
1: There's no question that people <laughs> with OCD are overthinking. We know their brains are working really, really hard. You know, it's very interesting. When we're really engaged or when we're busy, our brains get kind of quiet. And when we're a little still, our brains get kind of active. People with OCD will be overthinkers, and they will also tend to have a tendency to think in black and white terms, all Mm. or none, good or bad. And they'll generally admit to this, that they have a hard time seeing the grays in the world. They'll go quickly to the good or bad. They'll say, I had a bad thought. And so they experience thoughts as bad uh, or a good thought. So we try to encourage them to think of thoughts as just thoughts. But in some ways, OCD is... Kind of having a phobic response to thinking experience,
0: yes yeah, to yourself mm-hmm. okay, so you can 't have OCD without realizing it, because you mentioned it a few times people that have OCD, they know very well that this may be silly, but I have to do this
1: well, not everybody knows okay I mean, there are people that can go through long periods of their life and they 'll tell you when you interview them that I never knew this was OCD. I thought ah. everybody 's brain worked this way, I thought everybody did that, and mm-hmm we've seen people get into their late 50s and 60s before ever being identified professionally as having OCD. I mean, they may have known this was odd or not right, but not known it was OCD necessarily.
0: very interesting. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. So we talked about it deriving from anxiety, correct? So how is it diagnosed?
1: Generally, you'll be diagnosed in a clinical interview with a psychiatrist, psychologist, or a counselor. Sometimes really helps to be with somebody who's seen O C D before because there are some subtleties people might miss, think it's just a matter of worry or or not get the distress or ritualization that's involved, mm-hmm. even in a way a person might think. Uh there's also a, a scale called the Yale Brown Obsessive Compulsive Scale that helps kind of categorize how severe the condition could be and mm-hmm. when we're treating somebody we might like to use this scale occasionally to track progress okay. sometimes for certain treatments it's required that you be particularly severely afflicted so we might use that scale in those instances
0: so then treatment uh, includes cognitive behavioral therapy as well
1: definitely i mean there is a known treatment behavioral treatment for uh, OCD called exposure and response prevention. It's been around since 1975. It's nothing new under the sun. It's just really, really uncomfortable. And so it's a treatment that works. Uh, We know it works. We know it changes the brain biologically, yet it's tough for people to endure. Exposure. Put people in situations in which they're exposed to the very thoughts or scenes that create the upset of OCD Response prevention, or what we might call ritual prevention, is then preventing the rituals. So this is like going through behavioral withdrawal. And people do get kind of addicted to the rituals. It produces relief, so they're strongly motivated. So we expose them. In the case of contamination, you might say, well, Nada, here's a concoction of dirt and hair of unknown origin. I'm just going to put that on your lap for the next 50 minutes. And then we're going to require that you don't touch water for the next 24 hours. That's exposure and ritual prevention of course the brain does not like this and it's going to respond with a lot of tension and anxiety yet if you can stay in that circumstance the brain starts to quiet itself Mm -hmm. and it seems like it's not going to but anxiety has can only go so far and then it's going to start to come down and as it starts to come down your brain is learning an emotional lesson that it can't learn any other way and the human being is learning also that i can recover without the ritual it's tough I call it boot camp for the brain. Yeah, uh, And it works, but not everybody wants to volunteer for being that uncomfortable. And we do it in compassionate ways. We actually create hierarchies of these experiences from the, kind of the least threatening to the most threatening. And we work up the hierarchy uh, with that individual so that they can acquire higher levels of skill and, and tolerate higher levels of tension across a period of time.
0: So that example that you just gave me, is that something that you actually would do?
1: Absolutely, I've done really? that, uh, and wow. and some wild things uh, with patients across yeah. time. Really, wow. yeah, I mean, I've had patients hold knives to my wrist. Wow. Uh, I can recall other, you know, kind of loud exposure events we did, uh, you know, to help with harming obsessions. Um, wow. YouTube's great for exposing people to lots of things or of scenes they that they don't really like to see. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, that technology has emerged in a way that helps with exposures sure. these days too. Yeah. Does that
0: ever um, backfire? I mean, does that, do they ever get into an anxiety attack from having everything in front of them that they fear? You
1: know, exposures have to be done right. Yes. I mean, you, you have to keep a person in an exposure situation, preventing the ritual, we'd say until at least, long enough, until at least half of the distress they're feeling dissipates, okay? Because mm-hmm. then they're learning something critical. Distress passes even with inaction. If you do the exposure but you don't recover, then it just sensitizes that person. Oh geez, this really shakes me up. I'll never recover from this. Is there a safe
0: word? Give me (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Yeah, give me a safe word. (laughs) So that would just sensitize you. So it has to be done in really systematic ways so the person is actually experiencing tension reduction in that circumstance.
0: Okay, great. That's that's good to know. Um is there medication? like actual medication that we take for OCD.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there are medicines that are known to work, and the medicines often are going to be offering quick relief. Uh, A person that's experiencing OCD is suffering, and they may not be able to function well. And so medicines can create pretty quick relief, although we use antidepressant medicines often called SSRIs, Mm -hmm. selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. It's a fancy name. Yeah. If the medicine works, it tends to produce a decline in the symptoms of OCD. It takes a little bit longer than the treatment of depression. In depression, it might take four weeks to see if a medicine is going to start being effective. In OCD, it tends to take a little longer, maybe up to 10 weeks. And there's some research that suggests that people with OCD need higher doses of the medicine than those that might be just experiencing depression. It does work. We do see brain changes uh, on, again, the images that we can get from the brain when it's effective, same brain changes that we see with behavioral treatments. So both are biological treatments. We say the medicines offer quick relief, the behavioral changes offer more lasting relief. Often you'll see them in combination. Because sometimes it's really difficult to do these exposures when you're in the height of distress. Yeah. And I say, uh, you know, you can probably learn calculus in a room that's 120 degrees, but it's great if you could just turn it down to <laughs> yes. 70. Learning something hard yes. is just a lot easier in a cooler room. So we're trying to cool off the climate uh, with the medicines. And then hope that a person has a willingness to do the behavioral treatments because they produce more lasting effect
0: so I'm very curious how does the medicine neurologically work on the patient that has OCD because it seems like a very mental thing what does the medicine do
1: we're not exactly sure there is a circuit in the brain that uh, seems to uh, be implicated in OCD pretty clearly and we think that this circuit may be modified by the serotonin and Mm -hmm. so we think what you notice clinically when you ask somebody what has changed They might have the same thought or obsession, but it doesn't create the same anxiety Anxiety. reflex. It kind of caps it a little bit, hits a ceiling. Yeah. And so it doesn't produce as much distress. In that climate of relatively less distress, they may not feel the strong urge to engage in uh, repetitive compulsions, although the compulsions have some habit strength. I mean, they've become a habit. Yes. And so... There's generally a little bit less distress before we start seeing some of the habits you know, fall off. But yeah. we, we do. people will tell you they don't feel the distress in the face of the same thought.
0: Yeah, so they're able to deal with the right. reaction. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. So are there other conditions that may coexist with OCD?
1: Definitely depression. And it's funny because the antidepressants are probably treating depression too. It um, gets easier for people to uh, manage compulsive acts and be less distressed with obsessions. But depression is very common because people have been suffering, and they've yeah. been suffering for a long time, and so they lapse into a sense of helplessness that this condition has them, and they can't quite escape from it. So depression's common, other forms of anxiety, like generalized anxiety, which is kind of chronic worry uh, or anticipation of negative events in the future and yeah. kind of high arousal in our body would yeah. be very common. Then you have all these other offshoots uh, that we think are related to OCD a little bit, people that believe there's something really wrong with their body, with their nose, the shape of their face, mm-hmm. their figure, their symmetry. We call that body dysmorphic disorder. We have these other habit disorders. Hoarding was originally thought to be uh, some offshoot of OCD. We think it's a little distinct now. What's interesting about hoarding, people that collect yeah. things and have a hard time throwing them out.
0: Yeah.
1: Medicines don't treat that very well. Huh. And uh, people that have Hoarding problems almost never come to treatment on their own. People with OCD will. Hoarders generally are dragged in by family members with a bunch of pictures uh, to display what the problem is, but they will not be able to see it in the same way. We know they have a specific problem in making a decision. What do I do with this object? Which is a little different than OCD, although you will see these things coexisting. Sure. Then a couple other things that people might not be familiar with illness, anxiety disorder. People might have lots of distress about having acquired an illness. Mm -hmm. So they'll spend lots of time googling different illnesses or, Mm -hmm. you know, repetitive doctor visits to gain reassurance, Uh, hair pulling, which is called trichotillomania, skin picking uh, disorder, nail biting, all this little offshoots. In the case of hair pulling or skin picking, oftentimes a person touches their scalp or a spot on their skin and it feels imperfect and it creates some tension state and they will often try to correct that to some criteria that you know reduces the discomfort of that imperfection often in kind of trance-like state often in the same spot or in the same circumstance in their own home they'll suppress it in front of other people they can do that
0: right right oh it's very good with
1: ocd will also suppress compulsions when they need to so they're not embarrassed by them
0: and if you have one of these like nail biting hair picking Mm -hmm. skin pulling that's not a form of OCD right just to clarify it doesn't mean that you absolutely have OCD but it usually coexists
1: not at all Uh, you could you could have OCD and have these conditions as well I've certainly seen those coexist you could have that distinct from a diagnosis of OCD the other condition that is pretty commonly associated with OCD is Tourette's syndrome. Mm And individuals with Tourette's, these are tics. These are repetitive uh, physical movements, eye twitches, um, other movements or gestures. And at least one vocal, vocalization or vocal tic as we would call it, those people very commonly get diagnosed with OCD. The majority of people with Tourette's also have OCD, at least 60%. And about 50% of people with OCD had some tics in their childhood. Oh. So the the tics in OCD have you know, some commonality.
0: That's very interesting about Tourette's. I always thought it was just like a speech impediment. But now that yeah. you say that, yes. my, my own tutor in mm-hmm. my school has it. And um, he did have a lot of repetitive. He had to turn a certain way and walk a certain way. But that's Fair. very interesting. It is a, It comes with OCD.
1: And again, they'll, they'll be trying to suppress that but this urge to move in a certain way or blank or make a verbalization or vocalization kind of gains on yeah. them and it feels the only way to get rid of that urge is to engage in the sure, behavior
0: sure now when children have this um, you have this disorder, mm-hmm. can they outgrow it as they become adults and the opposite can you develop it when you're older? I know you mentioned someone, much yeah. older that did they develop her or did they just notice they have OCD? Can it come and go? Yeah.
1: With respect to children, I think children are highly ritualized in their play. If you're with young children, they'll often ask you to repeat certain behaviors. Yeah. Uh, you you know come through my shopping line and check out <laughs> over and over and over. They're gratified by that. We don't know if children really outgrow OCD. That the real course of OCD is it tends to worsen over time. And I'll try and describe it this way. Anything that, again, reduces tension, yeah. almost in a drug-like way, is very rewarding and will tend to repeat it. The more we repeat it, the less effective those behaviors become, mm-hmm. so just like drugs across time, you need more of that yeah. in order to get desired relief. So if the condition is not being treated, it often has a worsening course across time, and, and, and often people will come to treatment when it's gotten so severe that it's creating interference. There are some that suggest that OCD may remit or go away um, in some cases, but more often you're going to see worsening courses across
0: time. That's very interesting. So could it it be genetic? Is it genetic?
1: Well, it's interesting. We do know that about 25% of people with OCD have a close biological relative that's Mm -hmm. also diagnosed with OCD. And there have been some twin studies that suggests about 40 to 65 percent of the risk associated with acquiring OCD is genetic. So we think there is a powerful component there. It may not yeah. be the only thing, but it is a thing.
0: Okay. Very, very good to know. Now, um, we talked about stressful events triggering sure. OCD. Um, Are these called flare-ups? Like when when someone starts having the ritual more than usual, is that a flare-up?
1: Yeah, they'll actually speak of it as a flare-up of their, you know, condition or their symptoms. They may say, oh my gosh, you know, I really was terrible this week. Mm -hmm. You know, I had this, you know, stressor in my work life and, you know, I've just been counting more or pacing more. I mean, the number of behaviors is, you know, probably beyond what people would imagine and could constitute OCD. But yes, in times of stress... People struggle more with their symptoms. They're more affected by the thoughts and they tend to perform the rituals more. And you can imagine if a brain is experiencing greater stress and it's used to using ritualized efforts and reassurances, then that's going to get worse uh, when there's stress. And by the way, reassurance seeking, that is the greatest compulsion. And so people will seek reassurance in all sorts of ways. People actually come into psychotherapy. And they may spend most of that session trying to get reassurance from their therapist on a number of matters. Good therapists know how to resist that, and that reassurance is not a good thing. In an odd way, and it's not to equate the two, but it it does have this characteristic of almost drug-seeking behavior. They want that relief. And again, when a person is trying to change the condition, they will experience it as almost withdrawal from the, the feeling of reassurance, and it's painful.
0: Now, do you think, because you mentioned something like hoarders, they mm-hmm. don't want to go see, um, you know, a, a physician or want to be seen for it. Do you think right. people with OCD, they don't have the same feeling where, like, I'd rather do my ritual and feel good than go through, you know, dirty hair in front of them for <laughs> and not <laughs> touching water. Do you think that could be something where they could not be coming to a doctor for
1: I think not. It's real human to go through a cost-benefit analysis. Mm -hmm. How much am I willing to suffer to get to a better spot? And you can't make that decision for a person. I mean, they have to make that decision for themselves. It's one of the things that makes treating hoarders tough. It's because they really don't want to make this decision. But in a social way, they may not be able to do this without harming people around them. And, And so that sometimes compels them to treatment. I've seen people that simply are not going to you know, do exposure and response prevention, and you have to respect that. Sure. I mean, that person has to make a choice themselves. Um, and, and it is common that people try to find a comfortable way to do it. I always say there is no comfortable way. Yeah. This is boot camp. There is no yeah. comfortable way through boot camp. <laughs> and there are some people who do extraordinary, courageous things to get to a better spot. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, yeah, That's it's inspiring. When, when And when people get better and it's really lasting. I mean, they can take all the credit for it uh, because it was really through their effort. And and it is boot camp. Uh, I've heard it said in boot camp, they tear you down to build you up. That's not true. They just tear you down for 13 (laughs) solid weeks. And you know what? Leave it up to you. (laughs) uh, Hey, what happens there is, you know, the thing that made you so uncomfortable the first day of boot camp by the 13th week doesn't make you uncomfortable anymore. It's really changing the brain. That's what military training is about. I didn't realize that early on, but so we speak about it in that way that the dis- you're going to be uncomfortable anyway. Yeah. You might as well devote the discomforts to getting to a better spot right. rather than sta- standing still.
0: Very good point. So it's about 13 weeks long? Is that? or is Oh, it that's boot camp.
1: Oh, I will tell you. How so it takes long? a little bit longer for OCD because of the requirement to be uncomfortable. Some people can make some dramatic turnarounds if they're strongly motivated and can tolerate distress. Mm-hmm. Others can spend an awful long time trying to develop the courage to really do pretty powerful exposures and prevent the rituals. Um, So it runs the gamut. And I will say this, even people who are well-treated and who who are not experiencing interference from their symptoms significantly anymore, less than an hour a day, will still have a brain that has the capacity to reflexively over-respond to a thought.
0: Sure, sure. I can only imagine. Mm -hmm. Now, I read that reassurance actually feeds OCD. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to know if that is true.
1: Absolutely. I was uh, trying to allude to that a moment ago that reassurance is the greatest ritual. And it seems compassionate when somebody you know is suffering with a worry or obsessional distress to reassure them yeah. that everything is going to be okay. And everybody likes to hear that everything's going to be okay, but nobody yeah. believes it. And right. it feels good for a second or two, or maybe 20 seconds. I would say it's like a Band-Aid with no adhesive. It feels good going on, but it falls right off. Then you have to put the Band-Aid on again. And again, because it creates that feeling of low tension that humans love, uh, there's a tendency to want more and more of that. And the more you use it, the more you're going to need it. And there are all sorts of things like this. Nicotine, uh, caffeine, heroin. These are drugs that get in our system quickly and effectively, but leave quickly, and so you need more and more of it. Reassurance works the same way.
0: Okay. So I was thinking when you talk about reassurance that you're talking about as a therapist, that's what they want from you to tell them that it's okay. But what do you suggest to our audience that maybe personally know loved ones that have OCD, how to be there for someone, how to, you know, besides drag them to you?
1: (laughs) It's a, it's a tough matter because, again, you can notice their suffering and your impulse is going to be to want to take the suffering away, and yeah. yet that is not particularly helpful for them. I think it's good to you know, ask permission or to you know, notice, boy, it looks like you're suffering a lot. I wonder what thoughts you have about what you could do about that. Uh-huh. Would it be okay if I make some suggestions? One thing you want to stay away from is just offering reassurances. You know, when you see somebody who's really in the throes of anxiety, you really want to extinguish that fire. But you could say, you know, I can tell you're really anxious right now. And if a person is asking you for reassurance, you could say, I can tell you're really anxious, but I can't help you with that. Or I don't know anything about that. I wondered if you'd be willing to go see somebody who does. And, you know, try to keep making offers of that sort of assistance without using the reassurance. Some relationships get developed around reassurance. Yeah uh you know if you know somebody you develop a relationship with them and you you know they have ocd you've probably fallen in the trap of reassuring them it's hard to step out of that sometimes a professional can even help family members figure out a new way of responding rather than you know engaging in compulsions i mean there are people that will they'll go check the door over and over again for their loved one rather than saying you know i i know you're anxious about that but i can't help you yeah which Does't sound compassionate, but really is. Yes It's offering a, a path for a person to get better. Yeah,
0: it's actually helping more than harming. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah.
1: And there's lots of help out there. And look, there are some new technologies uh, happening for people with really, really severe OCD. Uh, in some cases, there are neurosurgical procedures, something called deep brain stimulation, which is used mm-hmm. in other conditions as well but has been used with some positive effect in uh people with OCD now that's a a brain surgery and an extensive oh. surgery and we'd like to avoid that if we can so yeah. some of these other things that we know work we try to use those yes. uh, absolutely first
0: so come see dr b right? come see dr b Yeah,
1: <laughs> come on along
0: thank sure. you so much for joining us not it was a real pleasure, pleasure.
1: always fun talking with thank you. you thanks for having me thank back. you
0: so much and sure. thanks again for our listeners for joining us today we hope you enjoyed this podcast if you'd like to make an appointment with a specialist in the center for behavioral health you can call 216 636 860 and to listen to more of our health essentials podcast from cleveland clinic experts make sure you go to clevelandclinic.org slash he podcast or you can subscribe on itunes and for more health tips and information from cleveland clinic make sure you're following us on facebook twitter snapchat and instagram at cleveland clinic just one word thank you we'll see you again this concludes this cleveland clinic health essentials podcast thank you for listening join us again soon